In this episode of Startups for the Rest of Us, Rob and I are going to be talking about customer development. This is Startups for the Rest of Us, episode 410. Welcome to Startups for the Rest of Us, a podcast helps developers, designers, and entrepreneurs be awesome at building, launching, and growing software products. Whether you built your first product or you're just thinking about it. I'm Mike. And I've been drinking coffee. It's not whiskey. It's not whiskey. Well, it's 10 in the morning, so I would hope it wouldn't be whiskey. Mike, I don't drink coffee very much anymore. Oh, that's true. I'm having coffee right now, so this is going to be this is going to be good. I have a coffee cup that says this is probably whiskey on it, so. Nice. I like that. Anyway, well, we're here to share our experiences to help avoid the same mistakes we've made. What's going on this week, Rob? Aside from drinking just a tiny bit of coffee this morning, which will hopefully come across as making me energized and sharp rather than wandering all over the place into crazy tangents, I've been listening to a book called Valley of Genius, and it is the history of Silicon Valley all the way back into the, I believe it's the 50s and 60s as Fairchild Semiconductor came up. And right now, uh, and it's it's told in the words of the people who were involved. So there'll be a chapter telling the history, and then it's a chapter of a bunch of quotes from Steve Jobs and Fairchild himself and a bunch of people who worked at Atari, you know, Nolan Bushnell and people who worked there. So right now I'm in, I believe I'm in the early 80s. And so I don't know when it's going to end, if it's going to keep going all the way to Facebook and Google or, you know, where it goes. But I, I really enjoy books like this. So I grew up there and I remember a lot of, of orchards and just stuff that wasn't developed. And then all these, these concrete tilt-ups started coming. My, and my dad was in construction and he used to build, he was in charge of building a lot of fabs for Intel. And then they shipped that overseas. And then it was biotech. And then it was dot-com stuff in the 90s. And then it became just more data center. So it had kind of a special place for me because I was there. But it's even if you're not, it's not like you need to have lived there to get something out of this. But it is purely a history book. And it's just kind of a fascinating telling of how these things all developed and really how Silicon Valley became Silicon Valley pretty much by accident. So if you're interested in that kind of history and hearing how things developed, uh, Valley of Genius, it's, it's, a, it's a decent book. Well, on my end, I've got a book recommendation that was sent to me from Keith Gillette, and he runs tasktrain.app, and he suggested slicing pie based on a previous episode where we talked about finding co-founders and how to split equity. And I looked into it. It's a very interesting book. The uh, slicing pie book talks about how to divide equity between co-founders based on a variety of different factors. And it seems like it's generally applicable to just about any situation. The, the general concept is that you divide the equity based on like people's contributions and the people who, you know, like if you believe in your, your startup, you're probably going to work more on it and you're going to put more time and effort and resources into it. But at the end of the day, it's a gamble. So you're essentially placing bets with your time and money. And those are essentially translated into like equity points for lack of a better way to put it. And then those equity points are divided among the uh, co-founders. And that's how you kind of come out with a final equity split. So I think it's a fascinating way of looking at it. I didn't dig into all the details. I'm sure there's some interesting edge cases, but definitely wanted to say thanks to Keith for sending that over to us. Yeah, definitely appreciate it. You know, I read that book or at least skimmed it when it first came out because I believe the author sent it to me or maybe he sent it to us. This was a few years ago. And I thought it was interesting, although it was probably not an approach I I would take. I think because 
I'm trying to remember even what it was, but I think it was like all the founders were kind of starting off and it was like a developer and a marketer and, and you're just dividing stuff or it's three developers or whatever. And I've always felt like when I've started businesses, we've always had brought different things to the table that might not just be task-based, right? It's like, oh, so-and-so has a hundred grand they're bringing to the table. That really sets things different. Or so-and-so has an audience, you know, that, that they're bringing and we're going to build that on. And that has a lot of, a lot more value than say, uh, building a certain feature or whatever. So I think it's, I think it's a good model. And frankly, it's the only book I know that's been written on this topic, right? So it's, it's something good to, to be thinking about. So what are we talking about today? So today we're going to be talking about uh, customer development, and the title of this episode is actually Customer Development for Dummies, but this is based on an article that was written by Sujan Patel on his blog, and we'll link that up in the show notes. And Sujan was a, a speaker in, at the MicroConf Growth Edition in 2017, but he talks about customer development in a way that I think that most people can at least get a few takeaways from, and obviously we'll add our, our own perspectives on uh, different pieces of this particular blog post. And we'll, of course, link that up in the show notes. It's an article at sujanpatel.com, and it's called Five Tips for Doing Customer Development the Right Way. His first tip is to talk to your customers, which I think that's one of those intuitively obvious things that most of us try to do, but I wouldn't say that we're all necessarily successful at it. But he's got a lot of advice in here about how he went about approaching the market for when they were developing Mailshake, and they'd go out to talk to customers. And the one thing that I think that he pointed out here, which is extremely interesting, was that if you're just trying to validate a product, you don't have customers yet. So instead of talking to your customers, you can go out and talk to the customers of your competitors, which I think is a really fascinating idea, not just because it's brutally obvious if you, if you don't think about it. But I hear a lot of people say like, oh, if I don't have customers, who do I go talk to? And I think that's just a, a perfect piece of advice for those people. Yep. And as a strategy, he says to find your competitors' customers, go on a site like Capterra or GetApp where people are rating your competitors. And you'll notice that most of the sites let you let people connect their LinkedIn or Twitter profiles. Then you can reach out. He said, reach out to 30 or 40 people. And in his experience, you'll get 20 to 30% success rate. And then ask what they like or don't like about your competitors' products, which I, I think is a pretty clever hack. Obviously, you could use something like Built With or uh, Datanize, but those are really expensive sales prospecting tools where you can get lists of folks who are, who are using things. And this should be more of a free way. It takes a little more time on your end, but more of a free way to reach out to competitors' customers. I, there's a lot of value in talking to competitors' customers. And even former employees of competitors, frankly, is, is kind of an interesting avenue. I guess you wouldn't get as much customer development, but you can find out more about you know, internal processes if you know, or at least approaches if, if that's something that, that you need. It's probably not something you need this early on, but it is something to keep in mind, you know, as you grow. The other thing I like about talking to customers or, you know, prospective customers and asking them what they don't like about the products is that it gives you kind of a punch list of challenges that they're probably having with those products. And you can kind of cater your own development to trying to solve those. Now, that's not to say that that is going to lead directly to success, but if you hear enough people saying the same things over and over that are bad about a particular competitor, then you can use that as a, just a, a marketing point as well as an engineering point to say, we are going to make sure that we solve this so that when people are looking for an alternative to this because they're so angry about this particular thing that happens, then we're the obvious choice for them. 
And here's a pro tip. If you start doing customer development like this and you you get the feeling or you get the sense that you're going to have to build your entire competitor's feature set, then make changes, adjustments, or additions in order to get the customers, that's a red flag, right? Because building that feature set is going to take forever. The best kind of market that you can get into is where a competitor or competitors are bloated and they have huge feature sets, but a lot of different niches or a lot of different verticals are using say 20 or 30% of it. And that 20 or 30% is broken, but it's the best option. So an example of that is QuickBooks, where QuickBooks is a huge tool and it can do inventory management and it can do invoicing and AR and AP, and it could do all this accounting stuff. Well, there's there's probably a slice of small businesses that just needs a pretty simple kind of basic, like freelancers, where they kind of just need some basic invoicing and keeping track of, of expenses. And that's where, you know, startups like Zero and Less Accounting came up, and they just built that part of it. They didn't have to build inventory management because they, they were just kind of pulling off of that part that didn't work. Another example is Infusionsoft. As we were growing Drip, we realized Infusionsoft has landing pages, shopping carts, affiliate management program, payment processing, I believe, is built in. Then they had email marketing, they had marketing automation, they had CRM. I mean, they had a lot of stuff. We did not need to build all of that. We just needed to be really good at the email marketing and marketing automation. And we were able to pull a lot of customers from Infusionsoft. So two examples of where of how I view markets. You know, if, if you had to build all of Infusionsoft or all of QuickBooks, you just can't do it. It's going to take you years to do it. So that kind of leads to a, a natural question to ask while you're talking to those customers is what things do you not use at all? Or do you use very little? Because that will help give you an idea of some sort of relative ranking of the features of the competitor that you probably have to implement versus the ones that are probably complicated and going to take a long period of time to develop, but most customers don't use. And if it's not used by 80% of the customers, you can probably get away without it. Yep. And one question that I asked during drip customer development was, you know, what's your biggest pain point with tool X, whether that was Infusionsoft or whether it was MailChimp or HubSpot or Marketo or, or Entreport, what do you, what do you like the least about it? Or what do you wish they would fix? Or what do you wish they would add? Or how could they do better? AWeber was on that list as well. And the cool part is I started seeing patterns of, well, I like MailChimp and AWeber and they're solid tools, but they don't do this. You can't tag people. You can't do automations. Someone said, I kind of like Infusionsoft, but it's really buggy. The campaign builder is too complicated. It's way too expensive for what it is. Didn't like the $2,000 up front. You know, there were some real specific things that everyone referenced back to. And so if you'll notice, that's what we attacked really early on with our marketing was, you know, we're like these guys, but better. We're like this, but different it wound up being something that, you know, in 10, 20, 30 conversations that I had could translate into our entire marketing message. Yeah. And you'll find that there's definite hot spots in those areas as well. So like, as you said, like you talk to 30, 40, 50 people, you start hearing the same things over and over again, and you just know where to focus your time and effort. The next tip that Sujan has is to track your competitors' pros and cons. And I think this goes a little bit back to the previous one where there's a difference between feature set versus what people like and what they don't like and what things they wish that the competitors had. And the, the feature set is kind of what they advertise versus how well they match the customer's expectations in terms of the pros and cons. There's obviously some overlap in the feature set and, and that, but the, there's a definite difference between how the customer feels about the features versus what their marketing messages say. Yeah, and Sujan says to Google things like competitor's name, review. So like 
QuickBooks review or QuickBooks testimonials and visit as many results as you can. Try to come up with a list of the top 10 things people like about each of your competitors as well as what they don't like. And so this is a way to do it without having conversations. And I would view this as like day zero research. And you're trying to put together a list or get a sense of the pros and cons of your competitors. And you're going to do this for multiple competitors. It's not just one in general. Typically more than one competitor has a decent market share. Then the next step for me would be then to start having those conversations with either people who have signed up for your early bird list. You know, even if you don't have customers, you can ask them, what do you expect? What do you want? What do you think about, do you know, do you use one of these competitors? Do you use QuickBooks? Do you use Infusionsoft? And what do you think about them? Or if you don't have that yet, Start building it today and then go and do what we talked about in the previous uh, step, which was to go to Captera, get app, and start having conversations with your competitors' customers. The other thing he recommends is that you track the changes to this list over time. And I think that's also a, an important piece that I've not really thought about in the past, but I do tend to agree with him because the technology is going to change over time. The entire market itself is going to change over time. And as time plods on, there's going to be a set of features that is standard across all of your competitors. And you need to make sure that you have those features because if you don't, you're going to end up being left behind. And that's not to say you should always copy every single feature that your competitors have. But if you're the only one who doesn't have a particular feature, you might want to seriously consider adding it. Tip number three from Sujan is to test before you build. And he talks about how Heat and Shaw does a really good job of going through a lot of testing. If you want to see someone who is really at the top of the game of like pre-validating products and doing customer development, go to hedonism.com or maybe no, it's called Product Habits Now and sign up for his email list and just watch what he does because Heaton is, like I said, one of the one of the best at this. And the reason you want to test these things before you start building them is that you don't want to waste a lot of time on building stuff that nobody's going to use or that isn't actually solving a problem that your customers have. So if you're just blindly copying a competitor, for example, they may have implemented a feature that they didn't necessarily know that their customers wanted. They may have just said, oh, we think that they need this or somebody mentioned this and we're going to build it. And then you spend you know, several weeks or a couple of months building something that because you didn't test the market, you didn't know that the, nobody needed it either, and you're just copying somebody else. You want to find places where you can save time, not waste it. Right. And you know, I realized that we didn't even really define customer development when we started. And some some folks may have heard that and they may have an idea of what it is, but there is it, it, there's a pretty solid definition because Steve Blank, who's a serial entrepreneur and he's now a professor or was a professor, was it Stanford or Berkeley, somewhere in California, he developed this concept called customer development. It's a four-step process. It's customer discovery to start with. So it's a lot of conversations, proposing an MVP, trying to figure things out. Then it's customer validation once you've started building it. And then it's customer creation, which is where you're scaling and you're bringing in customers. And then it's company building, which is where you scale operations and stuff. So, I mean, if you Google what is customer development, there's a pretty nice diagram of, of all that. And, and we don't need to go into those pieces to, for you to understand it. But just in case you're kind of listening, thinking, what is this customer development term? It really just means we are focusing really on the first step, the first and second steps here, which are the conversations with your customers and then trying to find product market fit. And I, and I think maybe even we're focused in, you know, Sushan is really focused on even just the first step in this article because second, third, and fourth is more company building and, and scaling an organization. 
So to talk a little bit about the types of ways that you can test things before you start building them, one that I used before validating BlueTick was, or during the validation process for BlueTick was, I created a set of balsamic mockups and then showed those to people. So instead of building code, instead of creating like CSS mockups or Photoshop mockups of exactly what the app was going to look like, I just kind of sketched it all out using balsamic and was able to link the pages together so you could kind of see how the application was going to work without writing any of the code for it. And it took me probably 20 to 30 hours or so to put that together, but that's a lot less time than it took to build the application and put something that would was completely functional together. And during the process of showing it to people, I got a lot of questions about like, well, what does this piece do? Or how would I go about doing this other action over here? And it gives you a sense of like where your design essentially is going to either fall short of what their expectations are or other areas where you should probably spend a little bit more time on it. Right. And Sujan suggests getting your wireframes and going to sites like Five Second Test or User Insights. Usertesting.com is another one. And that will give you UX stuff, but it won't tend to give you customer insights like you're talking about, Mike, where you were actually talking to a group who you knew was interested in the solution you were going to be providing. And, and I think yours is definitely, yours is hard, it's harder to do, but it's more valuable in my opinion. Tip number four is to go to conferences or events where your customers are. You know, this is an obvious one, but one that a lot of people overlook. I think you can get a ton of value in a two or three day conference. I mean, you could talk to 50 or 100 people if you scheduled well, maybe not 100, that actually sounds like a lot, but let's say 30 or 40 people really quickly in person if you you know really made a point of kind of having your stuff together, even having mock-ups. I was at a um, startup pitch, well, it was a competition, it was more like a demo day for a, a local accelerator here in town the other day and someone was talking to me about something and then pulled out an iPad Pro and was like, here, let me just walk you through. And he had, it was either mock-ups or maybe it was actual app running on it. It was kind of funny to see him kind of just pull it out during conversation as we were having drinks and I got a better picture of, of what he was up to. And I, frankly, I was able to give him feedback of like, oh, I'm confused by that or I don't understand why people would use that or that screen is really nice. Yeah, having something that you can actually show to people is uh, it's leaps and bounds above just explaining it to them. Because when you're explaining it to them, they, they're they going to have their own vision in mind of what the thing is going to look like and how it works and what it does even. You know, you might say something like for Bluetech, say email automation follow-up software or something like that. And they're going to have in their own head this impression of what something like that does based on their previous experiences. And it doesn't necessarily reflect what you are building. So keep in mind that like, if you can show them anything at all, uh, as opposed to leaving it up to the to their imagination, you're going to be much further along. The other thing Sujan points out is that an informal setting, such as a conference or an event, is much more conducive to getting feedback from people. Because if you're getting people onto like a webinar and you're doing a like a, a sales demo or something like that, people have a tendency to kind of hold back a little bit. Like in an informal situation, you get, I'd say, a little bit more honest feedback because people are, they realize they're not really being sold to and they're, they'd like to help you out. They want to give you feedback that is going to help you. And just in an informal setting, that alone is going to help do that. And his fifth tip for customer development is to live a day in the life of your customer. He talks about dog fooding your own product. It helps you smooth out the rough edges. And this is one of the benefits of Scratching your own itch. Now, scratching your own itch has been thrown around since 37 Signals said, hey, this is all you got to do because that's what we did. And look, it worked. And 
it is cool. It is easier if you can do that, but it's not required. You know, it's not required that you scratch your own itch to build a great product. I've seen it done for people entering a market that they're not part of. However, either way, whether you're scratching your own itch or not, you should dog food that product. You should try to use it as if your customer was using it. And if I recall, dog fooding was coined by, was it Bill Gates? It was someone at Microsoft because he learned that the CEO of a dog food company would eat the dog food to test it. So Bill Gates was like, we need to basically eat our own dog food, which means we need to use our own software to make it better. So if you're curious about why, where that term comes from, that's uh, at least my anecdotal memory of where it comes from. Yeah, and I've, I've experienced this firsthand with BlueTick. It was a lot harder when I was working on Audit Shark just because there's only you know so many servers that I have, for example. So scaling things up was a little challenging in terms of using the app for large numbers of servers. But with BlueTick, I use it to go out and do email follow-ups. And it's interesting to see the places where I'm running into challenges and whether it's a UI or UX related issue and like things are just not as quick. So for example, like there's a bunch of shortcuts that have been added and it's explicitly because I found that it was too many clicks to click between different things. Not one customer ever really said that to me, but I also knew just from using it that it was painful to do that if I had to use the main navigation without those shortcuts. So those are the types of things that you're going to find. And by finding those things that are painful for your customers to use, you're also going to be able to fix them and kind of prevent them from moving off to other products because they get so fed up with those and they say, oh, this has got UI or UX issues and I just can't, I can't get around or it takes me too long to do my job. You don't ever want your customers to feel like using your tool is a chore because you're trying to solve problems for them and and save them time, money. And if you're causing them more headaches, it's just not worth it for them and they'll move on to something else. Right. And using your own product shouldn't just be done in the early days, because once you have customers, you need to use it on an ongoing basis in a perfect world. So that's where if it is something you use, you have that leg up because you will get in there and you'll notice things that bother you about it that don't bother your customers. And it keeps your product at that really high level of refinement high level usability, you'll notice a tiny, like a little misspelling or like a four pixel difference between this and that. And it's just something that if you can catch that, because no customer is going to screenshot that and send it into you, maybe a typo they will, but there's, there's just these little things that I used to see in drip all the time when I was using it. And it was like, man, that bothers me that that is not perfect. And I would send it over to our design team and say, Hey, we got to fix this little thing. And it came across as a refinement rather than kind of a complaint. It was kind of like, let's make this tool better. So all that to say, if you're able to use your product on a daily or weekly basis, I do think that there's a lot of value there. Yeah. And just over time, just by doing that, it'll naturally get better and smoother over time. And that's really what you're looking to do is just smooth out the the rough edges there and make it a nice, clean experience. And when people get that experience from one product and have used others where they didn't get that experience, they talk about it. So that about wraps us up for the day. If you have a question for us, call our voicemail at 888-801-9690 or email us at questions at startupsfortherestofus.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from We're Out of Control by Moot used under Creative Commons. Subscribe to us in iTunes by searching for startups and visit startupsfortherestofus.com for a full transcript of each episode. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.
So Mike, we haven't done an after show in a while, but I wanted to call out a Kickstarter that went live this week from BoardGameTables.com, our very own Chad Deshawn. Yeah, so he, um, Chad Deshawn sells custom uh, board game tables, which are like epic. I've been lusting after them for years. And they're made in the U.S. and they're custom made, and you know they're two to three, four thousand dollars depending on the options you get. But he's done. This is his second Kickstarter now, and he gets pre-orders for a stripped-down version of the table that is. I guess the other one was made in China. This one's going to be made in the U.S., which is cool. But this one is called the Jasper, and it starts at like five ninety-nine. So it's very cheap. And if you get the dining room topper that allows you to basically, because it has a sunken surface that's like a felt or a cloth type thing, like a high-quality uh, thing that you can put your stuff out on and then you can top it with a, a dining topper. And even that, which is what I would get is like 900 bucks. So it's still really um, inexpensive compared to the normal custom-made tables. Yeah. The custom-made tables that he does, I think that he said that if you go all out with like a very large table and lots of different options, they can get up to five or $6,000 per table. And there are people who order them, but the, uh, the last Kickstarter he did, I think it was like, it was a couple million dollars. Like he had like hundreds and hundreds of tables that he was, you know, he basically had to have manufactured and then shipped over from China and hearing about all the logistics of that and the, the headaches of certain things breaking because there wasn't enough packaging material and stuff like that. It's just like, wow, that's, it's a lot to, to have had to deal with. Um, but it's also a really fascinating story. It's nice to see that he's, he's doing this again, just to kind of see what else is going in there. Cause I'm, I'm, I think I'll probably see him at big snow, tiny conf and hear the, uh, the inside scoop on some of that stuff. Yep. Yep. And he did an, an attendee talk this year at MicroConf Growth and talked about this, you know, how he does a physical product and it's B2C uh, and all that stuff in, in his learnings. So yeah, I am uh, totally eyeballing one of these. The Kickstarter, he needed $50,000 $50, and he's already up to uh, 360000 but he has 28 days to go on it. So I've had the tab open in my browser since it went live and I just got to figure out if I have room is what the, the question is room for another table in my house you know i'm looking at it now i think it says on my screen it says five hundred and sixty-six thousand. Oh, does it i'd need to refresh it then probably because i've had it open for so long i bet the socket connection died <laughs> oh yeah you're right no it's 566 828 backers so oh i think i'm gonna I, i'm just trying to figure out any way i can justify doing this because my son my 12 year old and i we set up we'll set up D&D &D or we'll set up, we played a game called Tiny Epic Quest the other day and you get all this stuff out on a table and then you have to pick it all back up and it just, it kind of ruins the whole flow of the game. And with some games, you literally lose the state. At least with D&D, &D, we can keep the state of the game. But with, even if you're in the middle of a battle, it's all on paper. But with uh, Tiny Epic Quest, we just lie. I mean, just the game's over. You know, we can't resume it. Whereas this, you could cover up the top with the, the dining topper. And yeah, this is pretty sweet. So... Well, he does that on his um, like higher end custom tables as well, and I always I thought that that was a, a fascinating thing because he found that that was extremely important to people, and I mean that's a great selling point for those types of people because most people, even if you look at just buying a house for example, like some people spend a lot of money on like a house because they're like, oh, I want a, a really nice dining room and it's important to the family. But when you get down to it, most people don't actually use their dining room. And then you have people who are gamers and they're like, oh, I want to use, I want to play board games and stuff. And then, but they may have limited space in their house. So like having that tabletop to be able to put over the top of the game and be able to pick it up later, it, it's just awesome because it allows you to play at any given time and you could just put the top back on and walk away or serve dinner and then come back to it either later that night or, you know, a couple of days later, it doesn't matter. 
Yeah, if you want to see an example of a really well done Kickstarter, we'll put this link in our show notes. But you can go to Kickstarter and just search for Jasper. And it's like a sales letter. What is a gaming table? And then here are the benefits, recessed playing area, padded surface, cup holders, and here's why those are important, and the dining topper. And then there's like animations, like animated GIFs showing the table with the dining topper being removed with actual games on the surface. So it flips through like Seven Wonders and uh, Settlers of Catan and like Ticket to Ride. Yeah. And it's like, it shows them all set up in this animated way. It's just, it's very elegant. So I understand why Chad has had so much success with boardgametables.com because he just, he executes really well. I don't know if he's a designer himself or has a designer, but there's a lot of thought put into this, this Kickstarter page. Yeah. And it's interesting. I've started to see like other board game tables like kind of pop up lately, which I don't know as I would have probably noticed if I didn't know Chad, but it is interesting to see like some of these other competitors that are just kind of popping up and doing different things. Um, I haven't paid too much attention to them other than the fact that like just kind of mentally noting that, oh, these other ones exist and they're kind of playing in the same space. But I, I would say that it's probably not a business that I would have thought that like, oh, there's a fair amount of potential here, but there obviously is like there's a huge amount of potential here because just from the, the Kickstarter campaigns kind of illustrate that. And then the fact that there's also room for for other competitors as well. That's that's interesting to me. Yeah, the gaming space is growing pretty quickly. Tabletop gaming has this big resurgence and it says people want to kind of get away from video games and parents want to spend more time with their kids and then millennials are kind of eschewing the, you know, the, the things that were popular 10 years ago or whatever. It's like, I was researching the gaming space and it's, it has substantial growth. So I think, you know, he's locked onto a pretty good, uh, pretty good opportunity here. I'm a member of a couple of uh, different Facebook groups that are kind of around D&D. And that's the, there was one of them that they made a comment about, you know, that your games are no longer like in, in total nerd um, and have kind of gone mainstream when you find like the Dungeons and Dragons starter set at Target. Yeah. No, I saw, I saw a starter set at like Barnes and Noble the other day and I was like, and there we go. Yeah. Oh, and it wasn't, you're right. It was at Target as well. That's funny. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, Barnes and Noble is known for having, stuff like that like i've picked up a couple of interesting board games there as well but they've they've had them there for quite a few years whereas target like is really much more mainstream like you don't find stuff off the beaten path there right that's true so well cool anything else so big snow tiny conf west are you going to that one in uh colorado i am not going to the west i'm going to you're going to east okay i'm going to west oh I did that on purpose, so I didn't have to see you. Excellent. I didn't do that. I tried to do, I was <laughs> going to do both, and I um, I have a conflict with East. So, uh, yeah, I guess I won't see you in Colorado then. Nope. No, you will not. <laughs> All right, sir, let's wind this up. All right, take it easy. All right, later on.